Amen. Um, 2 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 1, we're going to read a few verses, and uh, we're going to be in this chapter the majority of the morning. We then, as workers together with him, beseech you also that ye receive not the grace of God in vain. For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And here's where we're going to start paying close attention. Giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God. In much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, in fastings. Those are the things we have to approve ourselves in. Notice he changes the word to the word by. So this is what we approve ourselves in, and this is how we approve ourselves, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well-known, as dying, behold, we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. It's like a yo-yo. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But Paul did that for a reason, and it's going to minister to someone today. And finally, um, you don't have to turn here, but Galatians 5 and 13 is also a basis for today. And it says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty, but don't use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray today. God, we thank you for this word today. We thank you for the, your truth that we can stand on. I pray that we open our hearts and our minds to your word today. Let it change us, Lord. Let it move in our lives. Let, let us apply it to our lives and be doers of it and not hearers only. In Jesus' name, anoint it today. Amen. You can be seated. Closing the gap between life and lip. Closing the gap between life and lip. Amen. If you were to ask the question, what is it that people generally think about us today as believers and people of God, you would probably get a variety of answers. Unfortunately, many have a very cynical outlook on us. In my studies recently, God has really dealt with me that this cynicism toward his people is due in part to a lack of something very crucial on our behalf, and that is credibility. So I got, I got digging into this this week. The word credibility means worthy of belief. If something is worthy to be believed, it's credible. Credibility. There are many today who feel as though we are not worthy to be believed. 
What an indictment. But unfortunately is true in this cynical age that we live in. And I, I was trying to think about why this is the case. And it dawned on me that, there. see, we can easily blame them. Well, they're the cynical ones. They need help. Well, we can also self-reflect. <laughs> what can we do to help this situation? And it dawned on me this week that, that there is a gap. I actually think a couple of gaps that are playing into causing this cynicism. Many of you have felt this cynicism. You witness to somebody at work and you're instantly shut down or turned off. This, and it's so funny. I was working on this all week. And it literally happened to me yesterday at Walmart pickup. Literally happened to me. I was standing there thinking, I'm, I'm experiencing what I'm going to speak about tomorrow. The gentleman that came to, um, you know, bring the groceries, we do the pickup thing. Uh, he, we just got, got to talk in and I brought up the church and, oh, where's your church at? Oh, what type of church is it? That's instant in my mind. I got out of the car and we, you know, began talking. I was helping him with the bags and it was just a great opportunity to talk. As soon as I hit, he, his one the main question he asked was, well, is there a God in your religion? And I said yes, and he instantly stopped me. Instantly, this kind face turned sour, and he said, I am agnostic. I believe there's an existence of something, and I have a shallow relationship with him, but he is not worthy of my worship. Shut me down. And of course, I kindly kept going. I have this relationship with him. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. I encourage you to, I just kept being encouraging, would not say another word to me. Cynical, okay? And uh, he was inquisitive at first and then instantly stopped. And I believe that we can't stop all of that from happening, but there are things that we can do as as Christ followers and believers that can help this situation. I believe there are three gaps Three gaps that sometimes exist in our lives that can create some of this cynicism. The first is the gap between belief and behavior. Belief and behavior. Church, it is difficult for someone who is manipulative, dishonest, always out for themselves, very selfish, it's difficult for someone like that to identify with Christ. Some of the things today are going to be hard, but it's going to help us. It's also difficult for others to identify someone like that with Christ. See, many people, even in the world, know some of the attributes of Jesus Christ. When they hear Jesus, there are some kindness, love, honesty, integrity, so if we call ourselves godly and Christ-like, then there is an expectation. Amen? Not to be perfect. Perfection is not the expectation. We all fall short. But what our world does not need is hypocrisy. When we are unwilling to admit our imperfections and still go on pretending that we're on a higher platform than they are, preaching at them, that's resisted in our culture, deeply resisted, a gap between belief and behavior. The second gap is the gap we're going to focus on today, between life and lip. And I separate this one because a lot of people who do not 
who do not live the life that is in conjunction with behavior probably don't actively witness for, for Christ either. This gap between life and lip exists in the person whose life is a contradiction to what Jesus is, but yet they tell others about Christ. And it's that gap between life and lip, between what you say and what you really live, that turns people off. You got to hear me today. Open your heart and your mind. A third gap that I'm not going to focus a ton on today, but I believe it's here, that we cannot deal with today is the gap between fact and faith, especially in our world right now. We got to remember all the, all the good arguments for the Bible are on our side. It's all there. And it's our responsibility to be able to use the word to give a reason for the hope that's in us. That's our basis. We have a reason for the hope that's in us, but we do it with meekness and with fear and reverence. That's our responsibility. New Life, we exist today with this gap in an age that does not want to believe because they think that belief has no merit. I heard a story about a young boy who lived on the very top of a high hill. And he had an old jalopy. It was a car of a very ancient vintage. And in order for him to make it to the other side of the hill, he literally had to give it a running start. So one morning he got his contraption all geared up and he was zooming down the hill, giving it all that he could have so he would make it up the other hill that was on its way. And as he came to the intersection at the base of the hill, he suddenly noticed to his right a car was coming followed by another. He had just a fraction of a moment to figure it out, but he discovered that by letting the first car go through and then gunning his pile of junk, he had just enough time to make it between the two autos. The only miscalculation was he didn't realize the first car was actually towing the second. Somebody laugh, it's good. He learned a very important lesson that day you should never try to separate the inseparable. You should never try to separate the inseparable. What Jesus says to us today is, if you follow me, live like me. So that the gospel, my gospel, the saving power of my gospel has credibility and is worthy to be believed. It is our job to make the gospel credible to this world. The question is, how do we do that? How does that translate into this culture around us today? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's the purpose of my message this morning. So we're going to take a close, in-depth look at 2 Corinthians 6, where the Apostle Paul is speaking to this church, and he is defending his credibility. He's letting them know why it is that what he has to say is worthy to be believed. And worthy of their attention because he has experienced a lot of criticism. Some people even said that he didn't have the right message. So he wants to back it up with his life and close that gap between life and lip. Let's pick it up in verse 3. We're going to keep following on the screen. So 2 Corinthians 6 and 3. Thank you, media, for following this today. Verse 3 says, giving no cause for an offense in anything, that the ministry be not blamed. 
Another version uses the word discredited here instead of blamed. And another version says like this, we put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. That's our focus today. Let there be no offense so that the ministry is not discredited. Paul says, I want to live in such a way that if people stumble, they stumble over the cross, not over my inconsistencies and my hypocrisies. This, and this verse, church, is not just referring to ministerial staff. We are, we are all in a place of ministry when we enter our world every day, all of us. We should pray this consistently, that we give no cause for stumbling or offense so that the word of God and the ministry is not discredited. Amen. Amen. But now, the Apostle Paul begins to move on, and he begins to tell us what he has been through to show his credibility. So in verse 4, he says the reason for all of this is, as servants of God, we approve or commend ourselves in every way as the ministers of God. As the ministers of God. The bottom line is, I am a servant of God. And the way in which I serve is going to show you that what I have to say is worthy of your belief and consideration. Amen. He pins it down on servanthood. True ministry. What is done behind the scenes. The supporting cast of the kingdom of God. They seek to do what's right. They show up, open doors, cook dinners, visit the sick. You don't always see them in front of an audience. That's the last place most of them want to be. They don't necessarily stand behind a pulpit, but they make sure the pulpit's there. They may not wear a microphone, but they make sure it's turned on. They embody this verse in Galatians 5 through love serve one another. And these, in, in, that, in that book of Galatians, those words appear at the end of a document on liberation. P Paul is, for the first five chapters, Paul is proclaiming you're free, free from sin, free from guilt, free from rules, free from regulations. The yoke of slavery is off and the liberation has begun. But then he hits this verse and says, your freedom, however, is not an excuse to do whatever you want. It's actually the opposite. Because we are free, we can serve. We voluntarily indenture ourselves to others. In a society that seeks to be served, we seek opportunities to serve. That's how the kingdom should be. Andrew was such a servant. He was the brother of Peter. He came from the same town as James and John. Yet when we discussed that inner circle... Peter, James, John, we don't always mention Andrew. His name doesn't always appear at the top of the list of leaders. He lived in the shadow of others. In the group photo, he was on the side. Hands in pockets, but then again, he probably held the camera for him. Quiet, but not complacent. Just because Andrew avoided that limelight all the time doesn't mean that he lacked fire and passion. He led his brother Peter to Jesus. 
Peter went on to preach the first sermon. Peter led the Jerusalem church. Peter took the gospel to the Gentiles. He wrote epistles that we still read. He defended the apostle Paul. Anyone who appreciates Paul's epistles owes a debt of gratitude to Peter. And anyone who's benefited from that rock-like faith of Peter owes a debt to the servant spirit of Andrew. Andrew. It was, and it was the servant spirit of Mary that led to her selection to be the mother of Jesus. She wasn't a scholar or a sophisticated socialite. She was simple, plain, a peasant. She blended into the crowd. She hailed from Nazareth, a dusty village in an oppressed area of Galilee. In the social strata of her day, Mary occupied the lowest step. As a Jew, she answered to Romans. As a female, she was subservient to males. As a young girl, she was second to older women. She was poor, so she was beneath that upper class. She was extraordinarily ordinary. But this virtue set her apart. I am the servant of the Lord. Be it unto me according to your word. God is looking for servants to show him to a lost and dying world. No diploma required, no bloodline specified, bank accounts are not a factor, place of birth doesn't matter. Let all unassuming people of the world be reminded, God can use you. You. Jesus came to serve. In one of his appearances I was looking at this week to his followers in John 21, they were on the Sea of Galilee when they heard him call out from the shore. And when he told them where to find fish, they realized it was Jesus. Peter plunged into the water and swam to shore. The other disciples grabbed their oars and paddled. And when they reached the shore, they saw the most extraordinary sight. Jesus was cooking. He said he had some rocks together. And he, literally, he told them in John 21, 12, come and eat breakfast. That's what he said. Shouldn't the roles be reversed? Jesus had just, this was one of his appearances after crucifixion, the resurrection. Shouldn't the roles be reversed? He, he had just ripped the gates off, off hell. He disemboweled the devil. He, he made a deposit of grace that forever offsets our debt of sin. He'd sentenced the demons to death row and set free sinners. He's the unrivaled commander of the universe wearing an apron cooking. And even more, he has yet to remove it. He promises a feast in heaven, and Luke 12, 37 says, he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. Come and serve them. He was content with the humblest of titles. I actually want to, media, if you can help me here, I'm going to go to Philippians 2. In verse 6, I wasn't sure if I was going to use this, but I want to say it. Many of us know it. Who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, the form of a servant. He was content with the humblest of titles. He was content to be called a servant. What would happen if we took on the role of a servant? How many marriages would be blessed? 
If we set out to serve other people instead of serving ourselves, how much would our county benefit? We heard that burden last week, what our church is going to focus on. That starts with servanthood. If churches were populated by sincere servants, how many lives would be forever changed? Forever changed. In the hallway of my memory, I was, I was thinking of a servant that stood out to me. And I couldn't help but think of my grandmother when it comes to servanthood. Those who know her can, will agree. The way she always put others first. As kids, we remember her doing this for people. I even think of the way she took care of Grandpa Simeon during the process of his death all the way to the end. Served him. Served others. Christ-like. She carries on the lineage of Andrew, Mary, and Jesus. Do you? Servanthood. All right, back to our main text in 2 Corinthians 6. Sorry, media. I know, it's crazy. Paul ends up launching into what most commentators think is a poem. When he starts listing all these things, all the ins and buys, it's, it's like poetic almost. He, he goes on and begins to string these words together on purpose. In fact, he has several different words or expressions in this text. He just took one phrase and laid it on another in different sections. So the first section is, um, are the trials that he endured and continued serving through. So verse 4, again, 2 Corinthians 6 and 4, he starts listing nine trials that he went through. And so we're going to begin looking at those. First one, he said, in, he said, in afflictions. This is a general word that kind of covers everything, afflictions. I don't know whether or not you had some afflictions this week. But if you did, they would immediately fit in this category. Anybody have some afflictions this week? Be honest, yeah. Paul said he's been through afflictions. Then he said, in necessities. Another word for this is a hardship. A hardship is an obligation that has to be carried out with a great deal of grief. Maybe you had some obligations this week that had to be carried out with grief. A hardship. Maybe you were told to do things at work that you didn't want to do. Maybe they were outside of your aptitude. Maybe outside of the range of your responsibility or your gifting. Maybe there was a conflict within the office or within your home. Hardship. Experiencing a hardship. In distresses, that's the next one he says, distresses. Notice all these words are plural. Paul went through a lot of hassle. Distresses, places of perplexity. And distresses don't have to be major. They can even be minor, just life happening. A high schooler that couldn't get their locker open this week. Distress. Well, for some students, maybe it was distress because they could get it open. Trust me. We know what distresses are. They're frustrations of life. They happen all the time. Distresses, and it's not just relating to certain jobs like emergency, rescue teams, police. I'm sure they could tell us about some distress. But we all feel distress at times. It's life. Then he says in verse 5, he continues these nine, and he says, in stripes. That's the next one, verse 5. In stripes. Beatings and stripes. Later on in this, in, in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, 
he calls them stripes beyond measure. That's what he says. He says, five times I received 40 minus one. I received 39 stripes from the Jews. See, in those days, you were only allowed to beat a prisoner 40. That was the max. So in order to make sure they didn't exceed the max, they just satisfied with 39. But Paul said, I, I went through those kinds of lacerations five times. Five times. On three occasions, I was beaten with rods. He went through that kind of persecution, that kind of hassle. Then he said, in imprisonments, we know some of those. The book of Acts 1 with he and Silas in prison, singing praise to God right in the middle of it. Then he said, in tumults. A tumult, and those of you who don't know that, is a mob riot that would frequently occur when Paul came to town. Frequently. <laughs> Happened in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. He had a whole mob in these places, angry with him because he was preaching the gospel. In labors, that's weariness that comes through bearing many burdens. In watchings, and this word watchings here is like sleeplessness. Not, not insomnia, sleeplessness, but Paul was in situations where he couldn't sleep very much because of travel difficulties and stresses and death threats and all the other things. In fastings, sleeplessness and hunger. Now, this was not a spiritual fasting like we're in right now, though he did fast often. This is hunger because sometimes he didn't have much to eat in his travels and his work. What is God doing in all of this? I am a servant of God, and this is what I get. I'll tell you exactly what God's doing. He's taking the gap that exists between life and lip, between belief and behavior, and he's closing it in Paul's life. Closing it. Because he said, Paul, what I'm trying to do through your grief is allow other people to look at you and see the way in which you respond to it. Hold on, Paul, because this, this will give you that crucial attribute called credibility. This is all part of being credible. Suffering in the right way. Let me encourage you today. Hold on. Hold on, my brother. Hold on, my sister. The way in which you handle life's toughest distresses and afflictions will give you credibility with others. Somebody received that this morning. Praise God. So verses 4 and 5 were his trials. The next section of this message were the triumphs. How did he handle these trials? So let's go to 6. Verse 6. Now he changed it by. So in is what he had to go through. By is how he handled it. See how that preposition changed there? So verse 6 and 7. The first one, by purity. By pureness. That's how he handled these. He didn't succumb to immorality. He didn't succumb to a false motives or false teachings or new easier winds of doctrine. No, he remained pure within. Hear me this morning. The first nine descriptions, this minister to me here, the first nine descriptions in verses four and five are all physical physical aspects of, of torment and torture of the body, the stripes and all that, the hassles from the outside. That was verses 4 and 5. But now we get to triumphs 
which are on the inside of his life. It's exterior versus interior. It's as if the Apostle Paul is allowing us to have an x-ray machine so we can pick up exactly what was going on on the inside when the outside was so difficult. What would your x-ray machine show? Self-reflection today. Self-reflection. And not just self-reflection for a communion we're about to partake of later on this morning, but a self-reflection so that we can lead this county into communion with him. Amen. It's all right. How we handle life circumstances will give us credibility. Our coworkers ought to be questioning how we get through tough situations with a pep in our step. They ought to be. Our lost family members ought to be attracted to God through the way in which we cope with life. Trials and tribulation are always coming at us from every which way. But down deep on the inside, we know where our help comes from. We know why there's joy unspeakable. We know why there's peace that passes understanding. Trials come at us from the outside. Triumphs start on the inside. Amen. What does your x-ray machine show? So verses 6 and 7 are Paul's x-ray results. The first one is purity. By pureness, he says. Then he said, uh, let's go back to 6. Then he said, by knowledge. Another word for knowledge here is perspective. The ability to have a long-range point of view. Because the scripture says that in Jesus Christ are hidden all the wisdom and knowledge you'll ever need. And people who have, the no have knowledge have the ability to see beyond the hassles of life. Then he said, by long-suffering, by patience, the ability to endure hardship without compromise. By kindness, he says, it's a fruit of the Spirit, in case you forgot. Be careful not to get so caught up in these cultural wars today. They're everywhere, my Lord, that you lose your attribute of kindness. Well, I, I just think people should know how I feel. But are you doing it in kindness? Usually not even if you think it is. Newsflash, getting your point across about some crazy belief or philosophy you have or how upset you are about decisions that are made is not going to win a single soul to the kingdom. It's not. In fact, it does quite the opposite because it destroys your credibility. I'm in the word today. It's, all, it's, all, it's the truth anyhow. Do you think Paul was happy with what was happening to him in those trials? Do you think he agreed with the leaders of his day? But he triumphed by kindness, giving no offense in anything that the ministry be not offended. Amen. Next one, by the Holy Ghost, the gifts and ability of the Holy Ghost. And then by love unfeigned, genuine love, genuine love. What do you have more of, love or anger? Are you reacting the same way the world would? What happens when someone chooses to react through anger instead of love? They lose that crucial attribute of credibility. 
people think the gospel is unworthy to be believed because a born-again child of God, a God who is love, is not reacting in genuine love. I'm going to dwell on this one for a minute. Genuine love. Think about this. It challenged me this week. It is, is, is that the way we respond to people who mistreat us at work? And those who want to get ahead of us? And those who manipulate us? And those who want us out of our position because they want somebody else to take your place? Is genuine love the way you respond? Or do we respond with the same kind of response they would have? Do you realize they're looking for that? They know who you are, and they're looking for that different response. Then he said in 7, by the word of truth, that's the next one, by the word of truth, and then by the power of God. And then he says a very interesting one, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left. He says, I'm ready for who, whatever comes my way. I want to live righteously no matter what. It might be coming at me from this way or that way. I'm going to be ready. That's how I triumph. I stand ready. I'm always ready. And, and notice something with me this morning. In Paul's trials and, and in his triumphs, does he not mirror Jesus Christ? Jesus is spoken of as the suffering servant. Think of all the sufferings that he went through. And then he said he didn't come to be ministered to but to minister and give his life as a ransom for many. We look at the life of Paul, and we have to say, Paul, you must be a follower of Jesus because you're acting like him. And this same Jesus, about whom it is said in 1 Peter 2.23, that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. And when he suffered, he uttered no threats, but kept committing himself unto him who judges righteously. When people see the way they hassle you, and when they see the way you respond, which is, should, should be so different from what would be expected, it gives your message, his message, credibility. It makes you authentic and believable. Now, the third section of Paul's message, starting at verse 8, so now we're in 8 and 9. This is the third section. Paul gives... His testimony. We've had the trials of the servant. We've had the triumphs of the servant. Now we have the testimony of the servant. Trials, triumphs, and testimony. Reading verses 8 and 9, this, these are the ones kind of like a yo-yo. But I don't want to get too wound up. I, I really appreciate Sister Blaylock keeps laughing. I really appreciate that. But... <laughs> But seriously here, Paul, Paul, it's like you're sinking and resurfacing at least nine times. By honor and dishonor. Evil report, good report. Deceivers, yet true. It's like, huh, 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 back and forth. Sometimes I'm popular, sometimes I'm not. Sometimes there are people who speak well of me behind my back, a good report, and then there are those who bring an evil report. And all these things are kind of swirling behind my back, and there's nothing I can do to really substantiate myself here. I have to entrust my reputation to God. What I have to do in the midst of this crazy life, what I can do is make sure my conscience is clear before God so that the ministry is not blamed. 
which means many times we don't like it if we like to be on the offense. I have to punt the ball to God because I can't control what people say. I have to trust him because some will give a good report, some will give an evil report. Next one, he says, Decei he says deceivers yet truth. People made up false stories about him a lot. Said he's a deceiver. But then there were others who said, no, he speaks truth. So you got this debate going on about him. Then in verse 9 starts, he says, unknown yet well-known. Some people said, you know, why do you follow Paul, the Apostle Paul? No one's ever heard of him. He's not as famous as Peter. Well, he was well-known as a persecutor of the church. He constantly had to put on with this kind of activity going on around him. It's part of his testimony. That's what it is. Dying, behold, we live. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, hour by hour my life was in jeopardy. I die daily. He had rocks thrown at him in Lystra, and the disciples thought he was dead, but he rose up and went right back into the city. It's like a resurrection. Dying, behold, we live. Chastened, but not killed. As a result of his experience, he was punished by others, yet he's alive. He survived. Sorrowful. Going on to 10. Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. What a picture of life. Sometimes, even for us, right? We grieve, we have sorrow, but not like those who don't have hope. Should be different for us. It should be. It should be. And then he says, as poor, yet making many rich. Up until now, he was talking about himself. Now he turns it to others. As poor, yet making many rich. He was financially poor. He had nothing monetary that he could depend on. Yet spiritually, he was rich because of the wealth he had in Jesus, and he communicated those riches toward others. Amen. Amen. And the last one, this is what he ended with here in this poetic thing. As having nothing, yet possessing all things. What an amazing passage of Scripture he gives us. Trials, triumphs, and testimony of God's amazing grace. Yeah. So how do we take all of this, as I wrap up here soon, and filter it down so that it becomes practical for you and for me so that we can apply it? Well, I believe what I received from this are a couple of very important principles that we need to draw from. First of all is the credibility. Credibility comes through servanthood. That's one thing I took from this. Maybe some of you have had the experience of going home, sharing Jesus with your friends, your family. Why don't you try him? Look at what he's done for me. And they don't believe at all. In fact, they think you've been derailed. They think that you're weird. They think that you don't fit the normal pattern of human experience. And then maybe they reject you. Maybe they deride you. Maybe they disbelieve your gospel. How do you handle a situation like that? Well, here's, here's my answer for you this morning. You become a servant of the people to whom you're witnessing. Paul says it is through servanthood that we gain credibility. He says, 
he said at the beginning of this chapter, he said, we approve ourselves, we recommend ourselves as servants and ministers. He began to serve, and as a result of service, God will take over and use that message. People might be rejecting it verbally, but he allows it to stay at the forefront of their mind and show them that, hey, this is a message that should be considered and investigated. God will take over and do the work for you when you show servanthood. He will. Servanthood is the key. And I saw this too this week. You know you have the attitude of a servant by the way in which you respond when you're treated like one. Saying it again. You know you have the attitude of a servant by the way in which you respond when you're treated like one. One day... There were some disciples who were arguing as to who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Many of us know this scripture. It was a big debate. Who among you is greatest? Right? And Jesus said in Luke 22, you're talking pagan. Talking like the Gentiles. That's the way the world thinks. It's not supposed to be like that among you. In fact, if anyone among you is going to be great, let him be as a younger, as a little child. Let him be the servant of all. In some cultures then, back then, the number of servants you had was a sign of prestige. That was a sign of honor. Jesus was telling them, not in my kingdom, it's vice versa. It's not the number of people you serve that's important. I'm sorry, it's not the number of people that serve you that's important. It's vice versa. In my kingdom. It's the upside down kingdom opposite. That's, that is what the amount of people you serve is your mark of greatness. That's what gives your life authenticity that we all seek. I want to be authentic. I want to be an authentic believer. I want people to know that. So I have to show that. That's why Jesus was so believable. He didn't come to lord it over people. He certainly could have. But no, he came to serve. And as a result of serving, people saw that he spoke truth. Credibility comes through servanthood. Somebody say amen. Amen. I'm almost done. Another important principle for our lives. Servanthood leads to or is made credible by suffering. And this really begins to get that gap between life and lip closed. Where what you believe and the way in which you behave suddenly become one. When you're in a position of suffering at the toughest times in life, when push comes to shove, Job, how will you suffer? Curse God and die. No, he's closing the gap between life and lip in the midst of the deepest suffering. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Instant credibility. Instant. So credible that we're using his story today as a mark and an example of proper suffering for a God-fearing saint. Listen, it rains on the just and the unjust, but maybe that's the case so that the unjust can see how we get through it with God. We get cancer too so the world can see a difference. We deal with loss too so the world can see a difference. That's what gives us credibility. Even the way in which we die can be a testimony. 
credibility. Servanthood leads to suffering. And finally, suffering leads to salvation. Not for you, for others. Jesus died in many respects like other criminals died. Crucifixion in those days was very common. But there was something about Jesus that was so incredibly unique. There was something about Jesus in the way in which he was able to accept his fate with a sense of forgiveness. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He accepted it with a sense of resignation to the will of God, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return, but accepted it. People who looked upon him were impressed. And while he was on the cross, the Bible says a centurion, gazing at Jesus, said, Surely, surely, this is the Son of God, because of his suffering. And as a result of his suffering, salvation came to that centurion. And salvation comes to you and me as well through the suffering of Christ. The Bible says in Isaiah 53.10, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Jesus was a bruised servant, and because he was a bruised servant, he was a qualified servant and an authentic servant. It was actually said many years ago that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The Romans used to say, the more Christians we kill, the more there are. It seems as if Roman persecution would be a little bit of a difficult circumstance for Christianity to spread. But yet, the more Christians that were put to death, the more needed to be put to death. And what brought that about? It's because those who died, died with such a sense of commitment to God that other people said, I want what they have, even if I have to go through persecution. Instant credibility. During those dark days in Germany, in Hitler's Germany, when the church was under much persecution, there was a pastor uh, by the name of Baumgarten, which actually means tree garden in German. But he made a very wonderful and telling statement. He said, sometime the gospel cannot be communicated with words. He said, the time has come where the gospel must be communicated through the deeds and sufferings of the saints. And he said, it will one day be translated into a new vocabulary that will cause people to believe. I say to you today, with our age of cynicism, oftentimes the gospel cannot be simply communicated with words alone. There are people whose hearts are open to the truth, but then there are those who are completely closed. Don't tell me, I don't want to hear. How will we reach them? The answer is the deeds and sufferings of the saints. The ability to have trials, but to accept them with a sense of triumph and be able to give a testimony of God's faithfulness through all the ups and downs of life. That's what makes people think we may just have something that they do not. And that is the key that God uses to unlock closed human hearts, the suffering and deeds of the saints. In 1934, it's my ending here, Martin, I know I've said that three times, I promise, it's not Lionel. Martin Niemöller stepped up to the pulpit in a suburb of Berlin, Germany, and he said, 
to all the people during this time of great Nazi persecution and, and infiltration into the church's agenda, he said, God has allowed Satan to take the entire church in Germany and shake it. And he said, God has done that so the chaff might be separated from the wheat. And let me tell you, God then takes that wheat that's been separated from the chaff, and that when that wheat is planted, it bears fruit because it has proven its credibility. And then there was a clause that was signed. It says no person of Jewish blood could occupy a pulpit in Germany. And in 1938, when all pastors were forced to sign personal allegiance to Hitler in an oath or be executed or excommunicated, there were about 800 pastors who didn't. The rest did. And these 800 pastors were taken into concentration camps and prisons. And there they witnessed about the love of Christ. Reports have come out concerning people who were touched and blessed because of their witness in the middle of a concentration camp. And people didn't turn them off because that which they believed and the way in which they behaved, their life and their lip were one. They're one. They closed the gap. As we move into 2022 and act upon our burden for Stark County, we've got to stand and say, by God's grace, I'm going to live a life that will make the gospel worthy of consideration. We must become servants who are willing to stay strong, even in the midst of suffering, so that the salvation of others will be brought about. This translates the gospel into a language that can be understood. Stand with me this morning. And he will help, I know that's a big, he will help us do that. We can ask God to help us do that. And that, that will make us more, even more credible to our county and our world. Amen. Bow your heads with me this morning. God, we thank you for your word.